So this evening, I would like to look at meditation and mindfulness. And as somebody mentioned already, we also teach Zen meditation. And I must say that my main training was in Zen meditation in Korea. And so for 10 years, I was a nun in Korea. And the only thing I did for 10 years was just to sit in meditation, walk, and etc., and ask, what is this? What is this? And that's all I did for 10 years. And so at no point was there any talk about mindfulness. At no point was there any talk about awareness. And what I noticed is that when some uh, foreign guest would come with practice meditation in Burma or in Thailand, we had a kind of a strange discussion when they would talk about awareness and I would talk about questioning. <laughs> we kind of didn't seem to talk about the same thing. It's kind of always fascinating to see. But then, I, as I was doing this meditation, I was sitting uh, about uh, six months of the year, 10 hours a day, there was an effect. I could feel the effect of sitting in meditation, asking this question, what is this? And that was quite quick. Like I would say within less than six months. Certainly during uh, a meditation retreat, as I was sitting in meditation, just asking what is this, suddenly I became totally aware totally mindful of my thought. And I realized that all my thoughts were about me. Because, and this was quite a kind of like a shocking realization because since a really young age, I wanted to save the world. And I thought I was this amazingly compassionate person always thinking of others. And suddenly sitting in meditation, I see that my thoughts are about me, what I want, what I don't want, etc., etc., etc. And it was so clear. It was very clear awareness. And then there was another experience about maybe two or three months later where I was uh, in Korea uh, during a free season, so I could uh, go out and visit uh, other places. And I just went to change money in the bank. And I must say, up to that moment, uh, I had, I've been quite, I mean, until I became a nun, I was quite concerned about money because I did not have any. So I was always thinking about money when I traveled, a thing like that. And I became a nun, so I did not have to think about money, but still. And so I was in the bank, and the bank teller, when I changed money, gave me too much money. And so my first reaction was, great. <laughs> One against the capitalist system. <laughs> and more for me. And then to my utter surprise, I stopped as I was going out with my loot, 
<laughs> I stopped and I thought, I cannot do this. And I could not do this because of compassionate awareness, being so aware of the other person that they would get into trouble because the account would not tie up. So I retraced my step and I gave back the money. And I thought, oh, this meditation works. <laughs> and so although I was just doing the questioning, it was leading to more awareness. It was leading to more mindfulness. And so to me, it seemed that when we do meditation, we develop what I would call a creative awareness. So what we are trying to do here is not that we are trying to stare at reality, or as Stephen would say, we're not trying to eyeball reality, but it's more we try to creatively engage with the experience in which we find ourselves in, that it be inner experience or outer experience. And I would say that this creative awareness through these two examples has two aspects. And the first one is acceptance. Because I felt that when I was seeing that I was so uh, self-centered, that at the moment I saw it, there was an acceptance of it. So it did not make me feel bad. It did not make, feel, make me feel the most terrible Buddhist in the universe. But it, I just felt like, ah, this is a condition. This is a problem. This is a situation. I am much more self-centered than I thought I was. So then I thought, ah, yes. So that creative awareness makes us see more clearly what happened, but in a meditative way. It is not going to go into criticism, into judgment, but by being very clear about what's going on, then we can transform it. And then I could see that, yes, I think too much about myself most of the time. And possibly I need to think a little more about others. I need to bring them more in my field of thought, of feeling, of being more aware of them, that also they exist as much as I do exist. So I think that the creative awareness, the, the acceptance, helps us not to be blind anymore. Because I think often we have a certain blindness. It's like we're kind of a blind spot about ourselves. And then suddenly you see clearly, and so you don't just stay there, Ah, I am self-centered, I am self-centered. No, you think, oh, how does, I, does it work, this self-centeredness? What, what kind of thought does it generate? And how can, in a way, I dissolve not totally the self-centeredness so that there is no self-centeredness at all, but that you diminish the percentage? I would say then it was 95, and we're trying to aim toward 50%. So, you know, half for the self, half for others. So this is not a method of eradication. And so in a way to see that, and I was just doing this questioning, no talks about awareness whatsoever, 
Then I left, I stopped being a nun, I came back to Europe, I started to live in England. And all around me there was just Vipassana people, Vipassana courses, Vipassana teachers. And I thought, well, I'll try this, why not? So I did a few Vipassana retreats as a participant like you. And I thought, this is a good method. This works. And so then I realized that we have to be careful to say the Zen method is the best method or the Vipassana method is the best method or the Burmese Vipassana method is the best method because it kind of sort of sometimes gets really kind of really quite narrow. But to see what, how does it work, which was a question Guy was asking, how does this work? And to me the two elements that are essential is samatha and vipassana. Samatha, which is concentration, focusing, and vipassana, not as vipassana tradition, but vipassana as in looking deeply. And often, the thing is, vipassana is translated as insight. So often you have courses of insight meditation. But we have to see that each term can refer to the cultivation or it can refer to the effect. So samatha can mean concentration, or it can mean the calm that comes out of concentration. Vipassana can mean looking deeply, or I could translate it as experiential inquiry, or insight, which come out of cultivating the looking deeply, the experiential inquiry. So here... I would like to look, in a way, at the cultivation and to show how that cultivation, in a way, develops the creative awareness. Because that, as I was doing, uh, hearing about samatha and vipassana, concentration and looking deeply, I suddenly realized that actually in Korea, my teacher also talked about samatha and vipassana. Although he used maybe not that exact language, but he talked a lot about balancing, cultivating together, song song jok jok, which basically means bright bright, calm calm, which basically means samatha vipassana. So I realize that we have to be careful to think that mindfulness is only cultivated when you do mindfulness meditation. But it seems to me that any meditation which has us cultivate concentration and experiential inquiry together will help us to develop creative awareness and mindfulness. And so <coughs> how does it work? Because I think each has a very specific effect. Concentration. Concentration, we're supposed to concentrate, we're supposed to focus. And so basically, it's the ability to pay attention. The ability we have, in a way, to have a mind which is more unified on a specific object or is more focused on a specific object. And what is interesting is that a lot of people say, I cannot really meditate because I cannot concentrate. But I would say, Everybody has actually a great power of concentration. And often, actually, we are too 
concentrated. But the concentration we have is a bit different than a meditative concentration. What we have is a concentration which becomes obsession. And so generally often what happens is that we concentrate too much on a thought, a feeling, a sensation, a sound. We become obsessed about it and we cannot think of anything else. Then you have no other thought. I mean, you don't want to have any other thought. This is one way. But generally it is not very uh, pleasant. When we do this, it's not very pleasant because we are so focused on just one thing that we reduce everything to that. And so at that level, we feel totally immersed, overwhelmed, and caught in what we are obsessed with. And so we become oblivious to anything else, that it be a feeling, a sensation, a thought, a relationship, whatever it might be. And so in a way, what do we mean by meditative concentration? I think it's a different type of concentration first. It's resting the attention on something. It's really kind of resting the attention. Because often we have this association with concentration. When you say, at school, when we were told, concentrate, generally we stand stop, concentrate. I kind of just kind of become too concentrated nearly. And that generally creates tension. And what is interesting is the Buddha says to have appropriate concentration, we need to be at ease. This is a very important element of meditative concentration, to be at ease. So it is not a fighting with the thought. And that's why I talk about resting our attention on the breath. So there is this element, I, I am not trying to catch the breath. I am tr not trying to just kind of grasp at the breath. I'm just trying to rest my attention on the breath. Then there is a focusing. And I would see the focusing again more as an anchoring. That the breath is there to anchor us. So we focus on it to anchor us. It's kind of like, a, often they describe it as a post. That, you know, it's kind of like a post to which you have the goat attached to and she will room around, but she won't go and eat the cabbages or the carrots or whatever. So you kind of go around, but not too far. And I think this is a very important function of concentration, that idea of being a post, which kind of, in a way, keeps you not too far from the anchor, from being here, from being present. And then... I think we can see that there can be two different types of concentration, meditative concentration, what I would call an exclusive type and an inclusive type. And I think if we go for the exclusive type, which in certain tradition they put more emphasis on, then you are going to go what I would call absorption, very deep state of concentration. But personally, I feel this deep state of concentration might be very pleasant, might be very interesting, but generally they really don't help you so much in daily life. When you kind of cook your meal, when you have to take care of your children, I don't think that this exclusive type of concentration is going to help us. So if one wants to do a long retreat, then of course one can really cultivate that. 
But personally, I think on a seven-day retreat, I am more interested in myself and you cultivating what I would call inclusive concentration. And that's why I talk of foreground and background, main anchor and wide open awareness. So that it is not a tight, exclusive concentration, but it's more like you rest your attention and then you use the breath as an anchor. And then in the background, you have everything else. So you're not trying to stop the thought, the feeling, the sensation or the sound or hearing the sound, but you just let them arise and pass away with it in the background, that wide open awareness. And to me, it seems to be make more sense to cultivate that. It is a little more practical. And then what is interesting with that foreground and that background, that then you can have the breath in the foreground, everything else in the background, or you can have tomorrow the body in the foreground, the breath in the background. Then if you want, you can bring the breath back. And then the body go backward, and then back and forth. So then we don't start to fear. Because often people ask, no, but where should I concentrate? Personally, I think, yes, concentrate on the breath if you are comfortable with that. But that you concentrate on the breath, on sound, or whatever it is, as long as you're concentrated and you're aware of them, it is fine. Because we're not trying to develop this exclusive concentration, which then, yes, would ask us to ignore everything else and to nearly suppress anything else. When with this, what I would call inclusive concentration, then we have more what I would call development of spaciousness, that things can arise, but because the fact that we come back to the breath makes that we're not so stuck, we're not grasping so much. I'll talk more about this at another time. So, by cultivating this inclusive concentration, we come back again and again to the anchor. We have this idea of the post where we don't go too far. And then it's efficacious because it dissolves our habits. Because I think one of our main difficulties to really use a creative awareness, a meditation in daily life, is not that we cannot, uh, when we sit in a retreat with an appropriate environment, generally we can develop state of calm, state of clarity, wisdom and compassion. But the problem is more in daily life, or even when we sit in meditation, sometimes the habit reasserts itself. And so you want to be with the breath, and then you see your mind woof, taking you somewhere else. And it's nearly like we have, for example, with the mind, groove in the mind, that we go in this groove. You have the daydreaming groove, you have the planning groove, the judging grooves, etc., etc. And it's like, kind of like, woof, like if you have kind of a skiing slope. You, at the bottom, and woof, you go, it's kind of, like you barely started, you can't go back. It's kind of, you feel like, yeah, you're really going far. But with the anchoring, with the idea of the post, actually, we don't go so far. So we are with the breath, and then off we go into a thought. But then we remember our intention because we're sitting here, because of, uh, of what we intend to do. We come back. Then we go again. Then we come back. So really, the thought are not a problem. 
Because you could have a million thoughts and you have a million times the opportunity to come back. And when you come back, you do two things. First thing, you don't feed the habit. So if you are into planning, you don't feed the planning. If you are into daydreaming, you don't feed the daydreaming. And each time you come back, you dissolve its power. And then, it doesn't mean that you are going to eradicate planning or daydreaming, but you're going to be able to bring them back to their creative function. And daydreaming creative function is imagination. And so when you want to imagine, you imagine. But you're not caught in this habit which you feel like you're kind of stuck in there. You just have the power to imagine, to take it up, to live it. Or you can plan, but not plan constantly, but plan when you need to plan. And to me, this is a power. This is an effect of concentration. It, we don't feed the habit, we dissolve the power of it, and then it can go back to its creative function. And then our mind becomes more spacious. And I think the same thing can happen with the feelings, with the sensation, etc. So it's kind of to see, this is for me the, the point of the concentration, is to really to kind of come back. It can be the same if we have a feeling of anxiety. You can just have the feeling of anxiety and then you might feed it. I think the thought and the feeling can feed themselves and then it can increase. Or you might see, ah, anxiety. Because I am thinking of this anxiety, come back to the breath, and you still will have a bit of the feeling because that's part of function of the feeling, but it is not fed. And again, the power will go. And then you will be less taken over generally by your anxiety. So in a way to see that this is a, the point, I would say, the key point of the concentration in the coming back, not necessarily in the staying. Of course, if we stay more with the breath, again, we don't feed the thought patterns, but we don't need necessarily to do that. I think just by coming back already, we're kind of actually doing the work, which then will help us to be more calm, to be more spacious, and to be more stable as well. Then you have the second aspect, which is to look deeply, experiential inquiry, and that is using the brightness of the mind, the intelligence of the mind, so that with the concentration, the focusing, we rest on the object, and then with the inquiry, with the looking deeply, we penetrate inside the experience. So we have to see that this penetration is not, of course, we're going to use the mind, but it's not an intellectual analysis. We're not kind of above the object. We're really trying to go inside the experience itself. And then, for example, to experience its changing nature, that it's arise and it pass away. Or if it stay a little while, it changes within itself. We'll see that with sounds. Sounds arise and pass away, but also if you have a sound which lasts a little while, it changes within itself. And what is this going to do? 
the fact that we are more in tune with change. I mean, we know change. We know night follow days, the season follow each other. We, we kind of conceptually, we know change. But what is interesting is that we generally don't live as if change will happen more often than not. I would not be surprised if today you might have a certain sensation, discomfort, as you are sitting in meditation. And I would not be surprised that you thought, if I have this all day, and I have this every day, and if I have this for the seven days, this is really going to be too much. You know, we have a tendency to permanentize. We have a tendency to say, it's like this now, and then we kind of do retrospectively too. It's always been like this, it will always be like that. And so I think this is trying in a way to break that, to dissolve that tendency. I have a problem, it's going to be forever. I have a headache, it's going to be forever. That tendency we have, because it's intense, it occupies all the space and we cannot see anything else. And then we kind of magnify it. I'll talk more about this another day. And so this inquiry, this kind of looking into the experience is going to help us to see, no, a feeling, a sensation, a thought, a relationship, something that happened, generally it will pass, especially if I don't magnify it, if I don't exaggerate it. And so that, again, I think is going to help us to be with things more as they appear. We're going to be more aware of that possibility of change. It might not necessarily change fast. I'm not saying that it changes every second. But it can change. Often I have this uh, practice with feelings. If something happened and I have, let's say, a little kind of, you know, uncomfortable feeling, though the day I was in the shop, I was in the shop, and I sometimes I am... I know I'm a French person, but sometimes I'm come a little English or Korean, and so I'm not kind of totally in tune with what goes on. And this time I was somewhere else. And so I had kind of a reaction which was not totally appropriate for the lady. And so she was a little upset. I could see that, and I was a little kind of upset inside because she was upset. And instead of thinking, oh, this is terrible, I feel terrible, she feels terrible, I can't go to come to this shop ever again or whatever, I just thought, you know, can I just be aware of the feeling and see how long is this going to last? So I just was observing it. I went back home with the plants, and I would see, mm, yes, it's still a little here. If I thought more about it, it would be more here. If I did not think about it, it would not be here. And then by the next day, when I thought about it, the feeling was not there anymore. It was gone. So in a way, to see that thing actually are more likely to change. But of course, if you have a feeling which keeps being there, then you can creatively engage with it. But we don't need to kind of, kind of fix. I think this is in a way the, the problem often we have. We fix things. We fix ourselves. Our thought, our feeling, our sensation, our relationship, and this is it. And this, in a way, is helping us to defix. So then there will be more clarity about what's going on, but also more openness. Because you're open to it 
continuing or not, and engaging with it creatively. And this is something you might have noticed today. You are sitting in meditation, and so you might have certain sensation. You might have some discomfort, or I could say certain painful sensation. But what is interesting with these painful sensations is that actually, I would say they differed. They, they were different according to how you were. That if you are totally distracted, you're totally lost in a daydream, the time on the cushion passed very fast. I ring the bell, oh, I was in such wonderful daydream, you know, this was so great, you know, things were going really well. You know, the time, you don't feel anything because you're not here. <laughs> or at all the time, you might have been really focused, really present. And then you did not identify, you did not grasp at the pain. So you could still feel it, but it, you could still more see its changing nature. So you kind of, it was just there as it was, instead of kind of, exaggerating or proliferating with it. But very likely, most of the time you might have been half-half, half daydreaming, half concentrating, and that's where we're more aware of pain, is said. <laughs> and then we kind of like, one moment you think, yes, I can be with this, it's okay, it's okay. And next moment, ah, this is awful. When is he going to ring the bell? I can't survive this, etc., etc. And then it passes. And in a way, to see what is interesting also with the pain is that through the day it will be different. Very likely in the morning you'll be fine. Then the first 30 minutes after breakfast you'll be fine. Then the second 45 minutes, the pain starts you know, maybe after 15 minutes. After lunch, a little better, then the last one generally is... You know, so the pain is not the same all the time. You're sitting in the same posture, but it's not the same all the time. And then tomorrow morning, it's going to change again. So to see that again, it's kind of according to conditions. So I think this is also what this helps us to see when we are in this looking deeply, experiential inquiry, that things come and go. And things also are dependent on conditions, inner conditions, outer conditions. It's a bit like also sleepiness. Very likely today, at some point, you felt so sleepy, and we thought, how can I kind of, you know, survive this retreat feeling so sleepy? And then it goes. You know, you start at the beginning, you're a little bright, and then you feel, and then you emerge again. You know, and it just comes and goes. And so in a way, to, to be with it, you can, of course, straighten the bag, Try to help yourself, walk a little briskly before you come and sit. But generally you know, it comes, stay a while, and it passes. And I think then we can be with sleepiness very differently. To just see it's a little a lack of energy. And personally I would say to be careful of seeing meditation as being above condition. On the contrary, this, vipassana, looking deeply experiential inquiry, shows us how much... We are influenced by conditions. And that one of the conditions is the energy level that we have. And we can't have the... Because we are meditators, we can't. Even if we think we should, we can't have the same energy level. 
At times it will be higher and you'll feel bright and great. This is a fantastic retreat. And then it goes down and you feel, ooh, I can't do this. And then it changes again. So in a way, what this is helping us to be less fixed, less rigid. And then it's more like a dance, like an exploration of the different state, of the different things that can happen. And what is interesting in connection to Vipassana, to this looking deeply experiential inquiry, is that that is right view. And right view is the first of the Eightfold Path. Stevens through the week will talk about the Eightfold Path. And very likely at the moment he's translating Sama, which most people translate as right, but which is not right. <laughs> but that's the way it's been translated. And people translate it more as whole, authentic. And at the moment, Stephen is translating it as appropriate. So we can use appropriate. So the first of the Noble Eightfold Path is appropriate view. But it doesn't mean appropriate belief. It actually means appropriate experience in uh, connection with impermanence. That we know feelings, forms, sensation, etc. are impermanent. Mm -hmm. That is appropriate view. Not that you must believe in this or that, but more that you verify in your experience. Is this so? That actually things are changing. And personally, I think it's pretty much so. But it doesn't mean that they change all the time. They're not changing every second. But they have a tendency to change. So the thought you have will come and go, and feeling, sensation, sound, they will come and go. And just to be more in tune with that, that is the first. It's in a way being on the Eightfold Path. And so I would say that this is going to help us to be more bright and to be more clear. And so together, you have the concentration and you have the inquiry. So one brings calmness, spaciousness, stability. The other brings brightness, clarity, openness. And together, I feel they make appear, they develop creative awareness. And so when we're sitting in meditation, that's what we do. We're cultivating these two aspects. And over time, we develop creative awareness. And I think that's for this reason, it doesn't matter the type of Buddhist meditation you do, as long as you do them in that type of meditation you do, there is the two together. Concentration, looking deeply, or experiential inquiry. And I think that's why when I was doing for 10 years, what is this, what is this, led me to the same place than if for 10 years you cultivate awareness of the breath, loving-kindness meditation, body, <coughs> focusing on the body, or whatever it is. Or if you do certain type of Tibetan meditation, etc. I think generally in any uh, bona fide Buddhist meditation, you need to have the two together. You cultivate the two together, and the two together helps you to develop this creative awareness. And so... Of course, this creative awareness, we could also see it as mindfulness. That, that's a word that is used a lot nowadays, mindfulness. And 
Mindfulness, the Buddha talks a lot about mindfulness, sati. But what is important to see is that sati actually has different aspects. That sati has this aspect of awareness, sati has an aspect of paying attention, often it also has an aspect of the post, and also it has an aspect of memory, because sati also means to remember. So in a way, to remember in terms of meditative awareness, to remember the intention to be aware, in a way, to, to remember to be focused on the breath, to remember the intention of meditation. And so now I'd like to look a little at some of the simile that you find in the sutta about mindfulness. One of them, because often you have this idea of mindfulness as bare awareness or as non-judgmental awareness. But personally, I prefer to say creative awareness. Because, for example, to me, there is kind of like a spacious aspect. I would nearly say creative, spacious awareness. Because one of the simile is that it's like if you were up a tower. If you are up a tower, you can see really widely. And personally, I think this is the experience we, we, we have every time we come back. Notice, you come back to the breath, you come back to everything in this moment. You're lost in daydreaming, you don't hear anything. Then you hear something and oof, you're back. And you're not just back to the breath, you're back to everything else in this moment. So I think that when we are aware, meditatively aware, there is this spaciousness. There is the fact that we're not just aware of the breath, but we're aware of everything else in a kind of a wide open way, like being on top of the tower so we can have a, a wide field of vision. Because often our difficulty is that we're too fixed on certain point, and then we cannot see anything but that. I am stupid. I am always stupid. I will always be stupid. And then this is it. Your life is kind of, you, what I mean, I would say you're not stupid, but you could make mistakes, and I can make mistakes time to time. That happens. I did one recently. I was driving my car too close to the curb, and I did a little indentation. <laughs> so that was a mistake. So we can make mistakes, but I'm not doing this all the time, every single minute. It's kind of once every two or three years. Then there is another simile which is interesting, is that of the plowman. That when we cultivate mindfulness, we are like a plowman. That we have three aspects. That you have a, somebody who plows the ground, kind of in the ancient time. You plow the ground. You make a furrow in the ground in order to uh, put the seeds. So generally you have a cow, then... And the first thing is that you need to be steady of direction. You know, if you kind of, if you kind of your furrows are like this, you're not going to have a kind of successful farming. You need to kind of, you know, keep the cow going straight. You need to hold the plow going straight so that there is a kind of a, a direction. Then the other is appropriate depth. That in a way, if we dig, if you push the plow too deep, you're not going to go very far 
because it's really too deep and you're going to get stuck again and again. So again, we have to be careful. Often there is this idea that we do meditation and we must go into the depths. So often I hear this, you know, I am meditating, I am calm, how can I deepen this? And personally I would say, just be there. If you are calm, just be there. Just be with it. You don't have to go deeper. You know? I think you just be with it. And I think that's what this is a little, to just be adaptive. Again, the middle way. And then the other aspect of this uh, simile is the fact that as a plow digs through the ground, you uncover. You, in a way, open the ground. You uncover. It's, again, a little idea of insight. You see something you did not see before. Like, for example, me suddenly saying, ah, I am self-centered. Up to that moment, I had not seen it. And suddenly, it was uncovered. It was opened. Then another one is a simile of the gatekeeper. That the gatekeeper first protects. And I think it's important to see, because often people think, you know, oh, you must not repress anything. But I think one has to kind of be careful. You know, we know sometimes if I go into the thought, I'm going to go in a very bad place, very painful place. If I continue with this feeling, I'm going to, to be very agitated. So in a way, mindfulness is trying to keep us in balance. It's trying to protect us, to keep us in balance. Recently, there was this uh, little uh, thing in uh, France. It was going to be the holiday. And so two young boys of 15 years old thought we need money to go on holiday. So what was their solution for uh, money? They were going to rob a bring van. And they were going to rob a bring van with tear gas. And of of course it was a, a failure. Fortunately it was a failure. And they got arrested instead. But possibly if they had been mindful and at the mindfulness of the gatekeeper, they could have thought, this is a bad idea for many different reasons, and not go on doing it. So to see the mindfulness as a gatekeeper, what is appropriate, letting go the appropriate message, not letting go the inappropriate message, or what is kind of uh, dangerous. So that's what the, the simile I wanted to share with you. And so in a way to see that what we're trying to do here is very much to cultivate the concentration and the inquiry so that we can develop this creative awareness. We can develop this mindfulness that then we can take into our daily life. Because what we're doing here is what I would call cultivating, it's kind of like kind of a mindfulness gym. We're kind of developing the muscle of mindfulness, of creative awareness, so that when we go back into our daily life, we can use it. And actually, in daily life, we can use it even more. When we are listening to people, when we are working, when we are in nature. And so, for example, I will just leave you with a little exercise to do, which you might have done already. We are in this beautiful nature and we have lots of flowers and it's a beautiful garden. So go walking in the garden, go walking in nature during your free time and walk mindfully. So you start mindfully. 
Yes, I'm going to walk mindfully. So you walk mindfully for a few minutes, and then you think of something totally different. You're back in the past or in the future or in the office or in your family at home or whatever. And then come back and look. Look at a flower. Look at the color of a flower. When you were lost in thought, you barely saw the flower. And you barely saw the color of the flower. You come back here. You come back to the flower and it's magic. Ah, the purple of the flower, the pinkness of the flower. You think, oh, wow, this is amazing. I am having a meditative experience. <laughs> but not at all. What actually goes is the, the cloud, the cloud of unawareness, the cloud of being somewhere else. And so try, I would say, experiment to see when I am present and how often things are more vivid because you're 100% here. When a lot of the time we are here, maybe 40, 50%. And how that clouds, in a way, our experience. So that's what I wanted to say today. We just have a few minutes for uh, one or two questions or comments, if there are so. Mm-hmm. I just want to clarify my mind because I'm not sure whether I got it right. When you said that don't go too deep, you get stuck. What I'm thinking is awareness, you've got the creative side as well as the destructive force. When you say that um, to be aware, to get the balance, to get what is appropriate. It's not, does, do you mean that not to pay so much attention on the destructive side, but cultivate on the creative side? Actually, no. I, I was, uh, this reference, the death, exp, uh, the death reference, was really just very for just this little example in terms of people wanting to go deeper. I, I'm not saying that they should not go deeper. You can go deeper. But personally, I think possibly not just think of depth, but think of width. Personally, I'm as interested as depth, as width. And within that, of course, I would see to cultivate the positive, but also to cultivate being with the negative. And to me, that's what part of the acceptance is about, to be aware what are my good qualities and to cultivate those good qualities. Because if you know them, if you really accept them, know them, then you can cultivate them more and they will develop more. But at the same time, to be aware of your negative quality, negative habit, painful habit for yourself and others, and then to see that actually they are relatively impermanent. They're not always there. You're not always like this. But certain conditions make it more so, other conditions make it less so. So I think it's as important. So personally, I would like to, yes, we, I think there is this idea of depth. I will talk again about it later. But also I would see also the idea of width and then everything being taken in it, but then creatively engaged in different ways. Okay, if there is... Nothing else. Now there is some 
walking meditation, so please, uh, you can walk mindfully. And again, with the walking meditation, you can walk at a slow pace. And of course, there are some people who might be used to walk very slowly. That's fine, but I would not recommend it for people who have sciatica. I would not walk. If you have sciatica, I would not recommend to walk extremely slowly. But if you don't have it, it can be an interesting exercise. Or you can walk slowly. Or you can walk at an ordinary pace. But if you walk at an ordinary pace, you need to walk on a wider distance. And so I think it's for you to find that walking slowly can be very useful in terms of concentration. When you walk slowly, you get into this interesting focused state when you walk. But for some people, that can be a little kind of uh, stressful to walk slowly because they have more energy and they need to walk a little faster. And then that's okay too. You can then walk on a longer distance. And so during this walking meditation, I would hope that each person can find their own rhythm and can also find their own distance. Do I need to walk slowly on a shorter distance or do I need to walk uh, at a more ordinary pace on a longer distance? And at times you might do a little slow and short and at times you might do ordinary and longer. And again, if you can only uh, walk for 10 minutes because of some difficulty with the back or the leg, just walk for 10 minutes, then you can just sit a little, walk again if you want to, or maybe lie down five minutes if you need to. So again, see in which way you can meditate during this walking period. And so we'll see each other again at quarter to nine for the final sitting.